Hello, I'm Craig Tevendale, Head of the International Arbitration Group in London. And I'm James Doe, Head of the UK Construction Disputes Group. And I'm Rebecca Warder, a professional support lawyer in the International Arbitration Group. In this introductory episode, Craig, James and I are going to consider the arbitration of construction and engineering disputes. Complex construction projects commonly give rise to disputes, which are often referred to arbitration. But what makes a construction arbitration different from any other type of commercial arbitration? We'll start by considering some key features of construction projects before turning to common claims in the construction context. We'll then look at why construction practitioners typically choose arbitration as their method of dispute resolution and the specific features of construction arbitration. We'll end by considering how to plan ahead for construction arbitration and some methods by which you can try to avoid arbitration altogether. Our key takeaways are that construction disputes are large, technically complex and high value. They lend themselves to arbitration. In 2017, 23% of new cases filed at the ICC were construction and engineering cases, more than the energy sector, which represented 19%. Expert evidence plays a central role in construction disputes, not only in the presentation of opinion evidence, but in the factual investigation as well. Especially for large-scale disputes, it's vitally important to select the right tribunal, who are going to need experience of the construction industry and of managing construction disputes. Careful case management is crucial in order to manage the arbitration cost effectively, particularly given that construction disputes tend to be document-heavy. James, maybe you could start us off with a quick run through key features of construction projects. Thanks, Rebecca. Before we launch into common claims, I think it's well worth taking a step back and looking briefly at the key features of construction and engineering projects themselves. The construction industry covers a wide range of technically complex projects, not just the construction of buildings, but also major infrastructure projects such as bridges, tunnels, high-speed rail, metros and power stations. Large infrastructure projects should usually involve multiple parties. At a minimum, there will be an owner of the project, the contractor, and normally a number of subcontractors. On many projects, there will also be lenders, consultants, suppliers and insurers. These relationships can form a complex contractual web of obligations from which numerous types of dispute can arise. The high value, international nature and longevity of projects can give rise to even more risk, including changes in political and legal regimes, inflation, force majeure events and resource constraints. There will also be a large volume of documentation generated on a daily basis during the project, which can make managing the project more challenging and costly. So moving on to claims themselves, what are some of the most common construction and engineering claims that you come across? Probably the most common contractor claims relate to changes or variations to the contractor's scope of work. Specifically, where the contractor claims it is entitled to additional payment and additional time to complete the project as a consequence of changes in scope. Disputes over changes often comprise disagreements over whether the original scope of work has in fact been varied. This can involve a detailed examination of the scope of work documents incorporated into the construction contract, such as technical specifications, drawings and bills of quantities. It can also involve disagreements over whether the employer or owner has actually instructed such a change as opposed to the contractor simply developing the design as part of the normal design process. A moment ago I mentioned claims for additional time to complete. These claims are frequently referred to as extension of time claims. 
Construction contracts typically include a mechanism for the contractual completion date to be extended where the contract has been delayed for particular reasons. Those reasons include changes in scope of work, but often include matters such as force majeure, extreme weather, or unpermitted acts or omissions of the employer, which delay the works. These mechanisms extend the contractual completion date and are intended to relieve the contractor from liability for delay liquidated damages. Assessing who is responsible for delays is often a complex question. Determining the true cause of delay, and in turn the contractor's entitlement to an extension of time, involves a detailed factual investigation of the history of part of the project. The views of delay experts are often sought by the parties in support of their case. In most cases, the contractor will need to demonstrate that the delayed activities were on the critical path in order to establish an entitlement to an extension of time. The critical path is the sequence of key activities which, if delayed, would delay the overall completion of the project. The point being that not every activity which is delayed will actually delay the completion of the project. Only those delays that impact activities that sit on the critical path will normally give rise to an entitlement to an extension of time. What other types of contractor claims are frequently made? As well as variation claims and extension of time claims, you often see claims for prolongation costs and disruption costs. Prolongation claims are made in conjunction with extension of time claims and are for the additional costs associated with the delayed completion of the project. Establishing that the contractual completion date has been delayed only for reasons which are not at the contractor's risk are essential. A common problem with prolongation claims is that if the contractor would have been delayed in any event, for example by its own delays, it cannot normally recover the costs arising from that delay. In contrast, disruption claims involve the contractor claiming for the costs of inefficient working, which may, but do not necessarily lead, to delay to the completion of the project. These claims require the contractor to prove that its efficiency was reduced as a result of disruption caused by the employer, or due to reasons outside of the contractor's control, or not at its risk, and not due to its own inefficiencies. As a consequence of that reduced, efficiency resources had to be deployed for longer to complete the disrupted activities, or more resources had to be deployed to increase the daily rate of progress to achieve the completion date. Prolongation claims tend to be far easier to establish than disruption claims. And what about acceleration claims? Yes, an acceleration claim is another type of contractor claim related to the progress of the works, although less common than the others I've discussed here. Acceleration claims can arise where the contractor has taken steps to bring the actual completion of the project forward, often to counteract previous delaying events or just to complete the project sooner than originally planned. Often, in order to accelerate the works, significant additional costs are incurred by the contractor, including for labour and plant and equipment. Often these costs can be very significant. An acceleration claim is akin to a variation claim, in that the employer must instruct the contractor to accelerate the works. Without such an instruction, the contractor cannot claim the additional costs. Issues can arise where the employer insists on completion by the original completion date, despite the contractor being entitled to an extension of time. Does this request constitute an implied instruction to accelerate, such that the contractor can recover its additional costs of doing so? Whilst these so-called constructive acceleration claims have found some traction in other jurisdictions, such as the US, some English law commentators suggest such arguments are unlikely to succeed before the English High Court. As with most claims, the merits of a construction acceleration claims will turn on the particular facts of the case. Can you tell us a little about common employer claims? As with contractor claims, the most common claim made by the employer against contractors is for delays to completion. Construction contracts typically entitle the employer to levy liquidated damages for every day or week of delay to the actual completion of the project, 
If the contractual completion date is missed, the burden of proof is on the contractor to establish that they are entitled to an extension of time. As such, the employer's task is to consider these extension of time claims and determine the extent to which they are valid. Claims concerning the quality of the works or defect claims can also occur. Often the scope of dispute on these issues are limited, but it is usually reasonably clear whether the works comply with the specification or not. However, disputes can sometimes arise where it is difficult to ascertain who is responsible for the defects, particularly on large and complex projects where the specification can be vague or where there are multiple contractors and suppliers. Another related issue can arise is what standard of performance is to be applied to the contractor's work, specifically whether the contractor is subject to a fitness for purpose obligation or just one of reasonable skill and care. So you've given us a brief insight into contractor and employer claims. What other claims do you often see? There are obviously many other types of claims that can arise. For example, the tendering process can give rise to claims and disputes. There can be disagreements between the employer and the contractor over the identity of nominated subcontractors, particularly where there are local content requirements. Claims arising from handover are also common, and these will often turn on the existence and accuracy of records of what was done or needed to be done at the time. Another type of claim are final account claims, where the parties dispute the amounts owed or owing to the contractor at the end of the project. These can involve disputes over the valuation of the works, but also some or all of the most common claims I've already discussed. Finally, issues which are more generally encountered in the context of commercial contracts, for example in relation to the modification of contractual terms, force majeure and termination, also arise in relation to construction contracts. Recent cases have also shown how standard contractual principles of interpretation are applied to complex construction contracts and the consequences of having inconsistent terms in contract documents. We've already heard that the majority of construction disputes are arbitrated. Craig, can you tell us a little bit more about why that is? Yes, absolutely. There are a number of key reasons why construction disputes are arbitrated. The international nature of the project means that parties will usually wish to avoid local, unfamiliar court systems. Instead, they prefer a system that is perceived as neutral and where enforcement is more certain. Multi-party and multi-contract disputes are very common in the construction industry, where large projects involve a complex framework of interrelated contracts. For example, a dispute between an owner and a contractor may raise similar issues as to a dispute between the contractor and its subcontractor. Arbitration rules increasingly cater for multi-party and multi-contract disputes. However, the parties may have different approaches and objectives. Whereas a contractor may wish to include both the owner and its subcontractor in a dispute, for example, to recover liquidated damages levied by an employer against the subcontractor who the, the contractor believes was the ultimate cause of the delay, the owner may not wish to spend more time and money involving a third party for whom the contractor has already assumed responsibility and it will not wish to have to defend claims from many parties. This is a scenario that parties should therefore consider very carefully at the contract drafting stage. If consolidation and joinder are preferred, the parties should ensure that each of the contracts contains compatible arbitration clauses and that the parties have consented in advance. Another key point is that arbitration is private and often confidential. Parties may not wish to air their dirty laundry in public. And is it also appealing to have the opportunity to ensure construction experience on the tribunal? 
It is because parties can select an arbitrator or arbitrators with extensive experience in the construction industry. Local courts may often lack specific expertise in construction, with perhaps the notable exception of the Technology and Construction Court in the UK. Local courts may lack expertise in construction, with perhaps the notable exception of the Technology and Construction Court in England and Wales. In fact, the ICC report on construction arbitration, compiled in 2001 by Judge Humphrey Lloyd QC, specifically recommends that the tribunal should be made up of people with experience of seeing how an international arbitration of a construction dispute is carried through from start to finish. We said at the start that construction arbitrations are different from arbitrations in other sectors. What are the specific characteristics of construction arbitration that you would highlight? Well, one key characteristic relates to the choice of experienced arbitrators, as we've just mentioned. Interim relief is also an important factor in construction arbitration. For example, an injunction may be sought by the contractor wishing to block a draw on a performance bond, or the contractor may seek an injunction to prevent the owner from terminating the contract. The availability of emergency arbitrators can assist with this. In fact, in 2017, half of the emergency arbitration applications to the ICC related to the construction, engineering and energy sectors. And what about dispute adjudication boards? Yes, also unique to the construction industry is the availability of dispute adjudication boards, or DABs. These usually rule on temporary issues, for example, interim payments. They provide decisions which are binding, but not final. They can be overturned by the arbitral tribunal once constituted. DABs can be useful on ongoing projects, particularly if there is a standing as opposed to an ad hoc DAB, which is already familiar with the background and the progress of the project. DABs can help maintain contractor cash flow by resolving issues quickly, and they can also help to protect relationships, as the parties are encouraged to work together to keep the project moving forward. However, they are less suitable for more complex or high-value one-off disputes, That's due to their interim nature, as well as a relatively short procedural time frame. Preliminary issues and bifurcation also often feature in construction disputes, don't they? Could you tell us a little bit about how these procedures work? Yes, given the complexity of construction arbitration and the number of issues typically in scope, the parties may wish that the tribunal considers certain preliminary issues first in order to streamline the procedure. Common examples would include dealing with issues concerning liability or variations and breaches of contract before turning to extensions of time or prolongation cost claims. The ICC report I mentioned before recommends that the claimant's case on liability should be known before the decision is made as to time and money. Uh, A decision on liability and causation will often lead to agreement on the remaining issues in dispute, and that can have positive consequences in terms of the cost. And what about the document production side? Well, document production is often of particular importance in construction arbitrations. It's often a challenging and time-consuming aspect of any arbitration. However, a potential benefit of arbitration is that it permits the parties some flexibility to agree to narrow the scope of disclosure in various ways. 
Given the large universe of documents which are typically in issue, the parties might wish to consider how to manage the documentation both during the life of the arbitration and at the final merits hearing. For example, by using software that each party in the tribunal can access and having that set up early. In construction disputes, good record-keeping is often decisive as contemporaneous documents are usually considered to be the key evidence of what happened and in what sequence on the project. A good record-keeping process provides a paper trail to support the positions taken by the parties at each stage of construction. Another important characteristic of construction arbitration is claims presentation. The parties often use Scott schedules. These are tables which summarise the position of the parties or experts on different heads of claims and leave space for the tribunal to record its decision on each issue. If the parties wish to use these, that should be discussed at the first procedural hearing. The ICC report also recommends that claimants and respondents submit a chronology of events where there are claims for delay or disruption. After each party has submitted its chronology, it recommends that the tribunal should compile a composite chronology and send that to the parties, asking them to clarify any discrepancies. This composite chronology can then be updated as the case develops, and it should serve as a useful reference point during the claim. Now, a particular challenge in construction disputes lies in proving damages in complex factual scenarios where there may be many factors in play, including agreed variations, adverse weather, design issues, poor execution and a wide range of parties potentially at fault, including of course the contractor, the employer and subcontractors. So it's not unusual to find a series of complaints, some of which are well founded on the facts, pinned on to a negative final outcome, but with little evidence of cause and effect between the former and the latter. These global claims where the claimant does not make a clear case for the causative link between the losses said to have been sustained and the delay, are often brought by contractors where the contemporaneous documentation is inadequate. The usual lines of defence include demonstrating the absence of a causal connection between the damage and the losses claimed and the alleged acts or omissions attributed to the employer or by taking the line that the losses claimed would have been sustained regardless of the alleged action or inaction of the employer. And, of course, by making the case that the claim has not been made out on a factual, evidential level. Well, that leads me on to the importance of expert evidence, which is often central to any construction case, especially for issues of delay in quantum. Other fields of expertise include forensic accounting, engineering standards and the root cause of defects. An expert is likely to be heavily involved from the beginning of the case, or indeed before the case has formally commenced. The process of adducing expert evidence is arguably becoming more and more efficient with the increased use of joint expert reports, hot tubbing and tribunal appointed experts. The ICC report says that independent experts should ideally discuss their views with each other before preparing their reports. Shadow experts are also often appointed. These are experts who work behind the scenes to assist in the preparation of the case. They are not considered independent and therefore thought should be given as to whether it's prudent 
to put them forward as independent experts later in the proceeding. And it's important to also bear in mind that depending upon the agreed scope of disclosure, any advice given by shadow experts may be potentially disclosable. Given that construction arbitrations are often complex and document-heavy, preparation will obviously be important, but also prevention is always going to be the ideal. James, do you have any top tips for avoiding an arbitration in the first place? Yes. While it isn't always possible to avoid arbitration, there are some important things you can do to try and avoid a construction arbitration. Careful and accurate contractual drafting is key, and schedules and boilerplate provisions should not be neglected. The contractual terms also need to be made consistent with the technical documents forming part of the contract, and it is important to ensure that there are no requirements that cut across each other. For example, consideration needs to be made as to the standard performance required of the contractor. Providing for only a reasonable skill and care obligation in the general terms and conditions may not prevent the application of a more onerous fitness for purpose obligation if such an obligation is embedded in the technical documents, for example, in the form of a 20-year design life. When the contract is in place, what can then be done to avoid disputes? Once the contract has been entered into, it is important that the project team fully understands the key requirements of the contract and complies with them from the start, including the project timetable and particularly payment and notice provisions. Variation and extension of time procedures should always be complied with. Delay or potential delay should be identified as early as possible and the contractually required notices given. Those on the receiving end of such notices also need to address them as soon as possible and certainly within any contractually required time frame. Throughout the project, it is important to try to formalise agreements and contractual amendments before proceeding with any work or performing any obligations that are inconsistent with the original terms of the contract, even if this does seem difficult in practice. This is especially important if the contract requires any amendments to be in writing and executed by the parties. And the standard of record-keeping is going to be key. Yes, because as you mentioned earlier, keeping clear and detailed contemporary records is vital. Excellent record-keeping strengthens your negotiating position and makes it less likely that disputes will escalate to arbitration. It is important to ensure key documentation is always sent to the other parties at the time, that documents recording agreement on how to proceed are expressly agreed, and that any errors or false assertions in documentation produced by the other parties are corrected at the time. Schedules must be updated in the light of events. It is important to ensure it is a live tool, not a historical snapshot. You need to be alive to signed and unsigned documents, especially variation requests and orders. Construction contracts sometimes expressly provide that a variation order must be signed for the variation to be valid. An unsigned variation order can sometimes be used by employers or host states to challenge the contractual entitlement to additional time and money arising from the variation on the basis that the variation order was not formally agreed. It is important for the project team to understand that where an owner's site representative is present on site and maintaining oversight of the project, this does not mean that the contractor is absolved of responsibility or liability just because the site representative takes a hands-on approach or has reviewed or approved designs or other documents. Overall, claims should be addressed early and fully before they develop into serious disputes. In this regard, implementing a robust claims recording and management system is important. So if you've carried out all the preventative steps that you can, but you still end up in arbitration, what are the most important things that you should do to prepare and to protect your position, Craig? 
Well, there are some critical things you should do to prepare for a construction arbitration. At the outset, it's important to conduct a detailed evaluation of the claim, including the likelihood of success, both at award and enforcement stage, the quantum, the quality of the paper trail and the credibility of witnesses. You should seek early guidance from experts. The parties will often wish to engage experts at an early stage in order to help build their technical case. Witness statements should be prepared at an early stage too, whilst the often complex sequence of events is easy to recall and whilst witnesses are still available, can be easily located and are in a position to give statements. You should also try to gain an understanding of the universe of documents for the dispute early in the process. This involves reviewing the records in order to identify relevant documents and indeed to identify missing documents. Because document retention is particularly important in construction disputes and at the risk of labouring the point, it is vital to build the record. This includes producing necessary letters, minutes, submitting claims on a timely basis and providing timely responses when received. The recipient of claims will also often be subject to specific contractual timeframes within which it needs to respond to claims or submit notices of disagreement, for example, following an adjudication process. In relation to unsigned variation orders, one preparatory step could be to procure as many signatures for unsigned variation orders as possible from the employer before the issues on the project become too contentious and end up in arbitration. And contractual time bars can certainly prove contentious. Yes, as you say, parties need to be careful, particularly around notice requirements and time bars, which might affect both the employer and the contractor. And of course, any escalation provisions in the dispute resolution clause need to be followed carefully, particularly to avoid any jurisdictional arguments later on. And you might consider using the cooling-off period where it's provided, for example, under FIDIC contracts, to streamline the process and to agree on issues such as the number of arbitrators and on procedural issues where there is silence in the clause. Thank you, Craig and James. That concludes our first episode about construction arbitration. We hope you found this useful, and if you'd like to discuss any of the issues raised, then please do contact Craig, James, or me, or your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contact.